0: The past several weeks, we've been teaching through the Apostles' Creed. It's important to remember that this is the creed that was first used as a vow when people were water baptized, a promise that Christ followers made at the beginning of their faith journey or for guardians or parents to make for their young children as they would grow up into this faith. If you confess this creed with any degree of agreement, you are a Christian that's trying to be rooted In orthodoxy, which means truth, which is a good thing. Now, we left off last time with the creed's claim that there is one holy Catholic, not Roman Catholic, but Catholic meaning uh, all together, unified, um, um, universal, that one holy Catholic church. It's an ironic claim when you face the fact that there are over 41,000. Denominations and hundreds of thousands of free churches, not part of any denomination, many of which act like they believe that they're responsible for the entire kingdom of God, right? And and the entire world that they're supposed to reach for God, which is quite a burden to bear for one church. Would you agree? Right. Um, I want to make a couple of more comments about the church and then move into what we're sharing this morning about forgiveness, but. In reference to the church being one, Paul makes this haunting cry. This is 1 Corinthians 1. Is Christ divided? Remember, if we are his body, we are him in the world. In 2019, when we look at his body, it appears that it is divided. That Christ has been divided. That he has been hacked into hundreds of thousands of pieces. I don't think we grasp how this grieves the heart of God. If you remember the prayer of Jesus right before he entered his passion in John 17, he's crying to the Father. And he says, My prayer, Father, is not that you take those that follow me out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And then he says in verse 20, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, which would be those of us sitting here and all those that are in the world that are Christ followers. He's praying for us. Watch, why? That all of them may be one. The Latin is ut unum sint. That they may all be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so, and here's the reason, that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's something about the miracle of moving toward one another that communicates to the world that Jesus Christ has come to save the world. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. Why? Why is God giving his glory? Why is Jesus saying this? So that, so that there can be more miracles in the world, seen, So that people would respond more to altar calls? Why is Jesus giving us his glory? Watch. I give them the glory that they may be one. In other words, becoming one is not just a decision. It's a miracle. (laughs) That they may be brought, he says. He goes, I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity. Why? To let the world know that you sent me. And that you have loved them even as you have loved me. It's so easy to be separate. In fact, the story of the world is a story of fragmentation. The story of Pentecost is the joining nations, peoples, tribes. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. And somehow we move toward each other. And that doesn't mean we all look alike. And it doesn't mean we all agree on everything. It means that we put oneness and Catholicity or the sense of universality Brothers and sisters, more important than our thoughts or opinions. The Savior of the world wants the world to know he's present to save them. According to Jesus' prayer, unity affords that, which begs the question, what if the unity of the church has more to do with reaching the world than all our missions efforts? What if Christ is waiting for us to dare to move towards each other? Not to become uniform in how we believe and practice, but united as we celebrate each other's differences. Consider the theological reason for why Christ gives ministries to the church at all. Ephesians 4, it was Jesus who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Why? Why? To prepare God's people for works of service. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Not the knowledge of doctrine. The knowledge of the person. And in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. (laughs) What if maturity is more about a mindset of unity than anything else? Our creed claims Christ is going to return. What if he won't until the church fully becomes one holy Catholic and apostolic? What if the unity of the church has more to do with the return of Christ than obscure prophecies about Israel or the building of the temple in Jerusalem? What if indeed, this is just one of the reasons why I think the return of Jesus is at least hundreds of years away. Sorry to disappoint you. Although I will say that for most of us, we will see him before a hundred years is up. (laughs) The work of unity is hard work. And in many ways, it has just begun after the fragmentation of the Reformation. The New Testament calls us to strive towards unity. Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. You know, sometimes we have tier one, tier two, tier three verses. Sometimes we think the most important verse in the Bible is, you must be born again. That's what Jesus said. But that's not all Jesus said. These texts are the same. Why is this a tier two? Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. In the bond of peace, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. <laughs> See, Augustine and other church fathers, they, they believed faith was something deeply personal to be sure. But they view the idea of privatizing one's faith to the point where you didn't think the church was necessary or critical to your faith as an attack against Christ. And he held, Augustine held, that there was an element of idolatry in a person's life when they pulled away from the unity of the church and tried to stand separate from the community of faith. Historically, all the church fathers believed the impulse of the Christian faith was always toward unity. It was commonly thought that the dawning of evil was what created division between humanity. Think Babel. Saint Maximus wrote, the devil, man's tempter from the beginning, had separated man in his will from God and then had separated men from each other. This was the work of the devil. This was the work of sin. In contrast, Henri de Lubach wrote, quote, God is working continually in the world to the effect that all should come together into unity. Think Pentecost, which was the anti Babel. It was sin that shattered humanity into a thousand pieces. And humanity, which ought to constitute a harmonious whole that's that Catholicity it has turned, in which mine and thine would be no contradiction, is turned into a multitude of individuals as numerous as the sands of the seashore, all of whom show violently discord inclinations. He's describing the fragmentation that happens from sin. How in the world could we ever think we're being holy because we separate ourselves from one another over doctrine or practice? How did that get in our minds? Jesus' claim was that the world would know that we are his followers because of our commitment and move towards unity. He told the disciples what was, to become of their, what was to become their new center as believers. He said in John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just like I loved you, that you also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's our calling. That's why he invites us to the table. Think of who is there. Think of who was at that first table. You have Simon the zealot who is radically political in one way. And then you have Matthew the tax collector who's radically political in another way. And Simon would have loved to kill Matthew. Deep rivers of contradiction. And then Judas is there. Who let him in? Jesus let the betrayer in. And there they are, gathered around the table, confused, self-interests, and yet Jesus was saying, here, come, let's be together. Jesus called himself the shepherd of one flock. The movement of teaching within the church has always led inexorably toward unity. The idea of separating ourselves from each other because of doctrine, because of practice, was called carnal by Paul and was thought of, listen to this, was thought of as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the second century. Think of that. You were committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit if you would dare to make an issue the reason that you would separate. How concerned are we about this? I fear that at present, our predominant spiritual individuality and our commitment to curate our own brand of faith and belief, independent from any community of faith, believers, based, our beliefs are often based on a bit of Bible, some conversations we've had, a dash, you know, maybe of a couple old Oprah shows and uh, some imagery from Stranger Things. And we come up with this faith that we feel authentic about. And that if it separates us from everybody, that's okay. Why? Because we're great Americans. We're not necessarily great Christians. The point is, when we stand and say week in and week out, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We are speaking by faith. We are speaking in hope. We are speaking prophetically. Because at this point in history, it does not appear that this one church even exists. But we stand up and we say it does. All right, next. That's all I got on that. (laughs) Next, the creed affirms a belief in the forgiveness of sins. This is good news. First, it means that God is not thrown by our failure. He's committed to this idea of forgiveness. The word forgiveness comes from a Greek word, aphaimi. It means to send away. One uh, person wrote as if a bullet out of a gun, right? It's just to violently send it away. That God is so committed that when you come in with your failure, he doesn't lock you into it. He sends it away, blasts it away from you. Psalm 103 speaks of this beautifully. The Lord is compassionate and gracious so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Why? Because he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. I used to read this out of the uh, New American Standard Version for years. And in the 80s, I would say, he knows we're but dust. And all, all of a sudden, the kids were laughing a lot. When I was saying, what? So you said you He knows we're butt dust. (laughs) So now I use a different translation. But I do agree we are butt dust. (laughs) (laughs) What this means is that God is not demanding some great performance from you. In Psalm 139, he says, O oh Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit, you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my stuff. Before there's even a word on my tongue, God, you know it. You hem me in behind before you've laid your hand upon me. The claim here is that we are known completely by God, and in one sense, this idea should paralyze us. Nothing hidden, nothing. Even our thoughts, not hidden. Then the psalmist nods to an improbable and completely unexpected response from God. And that that he says this, you have laid your hand upon me. In spite of all that has happened, all that I've done, all that I even thought about doing, you still lay your hand. This is a reference of a hand of care, not a whack, but a hand of blessing, of care, of love, which is to say that though God knows the worst about you, God still reaches out to care for, love, and bless you. (laughs) The next verse, well, When he says, the next verse, the psalmist says, after that's been said, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. He's basically responding, there is no way this can be true. How can this be true? How can you know me so completely and still bless me? Because if I know me the way I know me, I want to kill me. J.I. Packer captures this claim from God about us in this quote, quote, There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic. Based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. So that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself. End quote. This means it's safe to admit failure before God. First, you're not telling God something he doesn't already see. Second, God isn't surprised by your failure. And third, mercy always triumphs over judgment <laughs> in God. All God asks is that we simply come and confess. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness see confession is safe the goal is never to shame you to condemn you in fact the new testament declares in romans therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus no matter how dumb you've been no matter how consistent you've failed God is not out to make you feel guilt or to make you feel like a worm. God is calling simply us to a new place of being forgiven. To a place where it's as if we never failed. Others may remember, we may need to do restitution. There may be stuff that you need to do on the human end. But from God's perspective, it's as if you've never failed. You ought to slap somebody, just... There's a couple of ways that that works. First of all, it's 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 like that eraser Do you ever do those things where you do those little knobby things and you kind of do it and you mess up the drawing and what do you do? You Throw it away? No, you go. Right. So so here you are, just trying to serve God and trying to be kind and trying to be loving and trying to and then I of a sudden, it's like crud. What do I do? Forgiveness, man. Just do your. Ch- 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 or, or, or when, I was, when the kids were little, you know, I used to play video I don't play videos anymore. They got too hard. But when they, when they were little, you know, and there were little knobby things walking around, you know, I would play those video games. And I was pretty good. I used to beat my kids, you know, when they were two and three. <laughs> but by the time they're hitting four, they're getting pretty good. You know, my oldest was getting pretty good. And then when I, I would never forget the first time he was actually beating me. And I just, I was kind of freaking out. And I was watching him, and I'm trying to keep up with it. I couldn't keep up with it, so I just reached over to to the thing and pushed reset. (laughs) It's as if it never happened. (laughs) If you're losing in the game, baby, hit your reset. Say, God, help And then you stand before God as if you had never sinned, so far as the east is from the west. That's how far he has cast your transgressions from you. And then not only that, but the way forgiveness works, is, it's not just the sending away of our failings. It's the call to growth. Because God knows us completely, God is able to see that we're not just sinful creatures. There's something more. God is able to see and to summon into being that which is just potential in us, namely the self in us that is not the sinner, the new person, the new creation in Christ Jesus. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 4. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted. Notice it's still currently being corrupted. Still this activity pulling at you. Paul said, I got to die daily. I'm hoping one day to get to that instead of having to die hourly. He said, which is being corrupted by his deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds Had to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In this sense, God forgives us rather than just our sin." The sinful self is allowed to die. The self that can live righteous life is raised by God through our process of coming to him for forgiveness. It's God's call for us to become a new kind of humanity. (laughs) The beauty of this is that God is okay with you being a schizophrenic for a while. Right? Where sometimes you're righteous, sometimes you're not so much. But God invites you every time when you're not so much, to simply come. His forgiveness is not based on conditions other than just confession. Again, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful to forgive. As a young man, I remember growing up trying to be holy, trying to obey my parents, trying to be a disciple of Christ and was really a professional sinner at such a young age, right? And, uh, and I was so discouraged. I would get so discouraged. I remember one particular day, I walked into our, our um, dining room, and I sat down, and I said, God, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. I'm just I'm so unfaithful. And I don't, my part, I just, I'm so sorry. I'm so unfaithful. And I remember hearing, based on this text, the Holy Spirit saying to me, I am more faithful to forgive you than you are faithful to sin. I am more faithful to forgive you than you are faithful to sin. And basically the idea was you can't beat God. I mean, he told us to forgive one another. One time Peter comes up to Jesus and said, all right, so I'm okay with this forgiveness thing, but how many times? Like seven You know, and he's keeping track, right? Seven? And Jesus goes, no. It's like more like seven times 70. And then another gospel adds a day. That's like 490 times a day. I mean, you may be really having trouble, but I bet you you don't sin 490 times a day. I mean, you may get into the low 400s. (laughs) But, but (laughs) But if God calls us to forgive each other 490 times a day, how much further and beyond infinitely is God? I would like to suggest that the reason God makes it so easy to get forgiven is so that the focus of our lives is not on our sinfulness but so that we can understand our selfishness and our self-absorption and then be open to God's call to live a life that is higher than that. And for him to communicate to us the way we in our personality, with our experience, with our past, with our hurts, with our abuses or being abused, how we can process living a new kind of life. And that just takes a while to, to crack that code for you. The same code doesn't work for everybody. Now, many in our modern age have abandoned the notion of personal sin. So forgiveness seems superfluous. It's it's unnecessary. People have pathologies, not sin. Due to genes, due to environment, nobody sins anymore. On this view, we're not sinners who need forgiveness. We're simply sick people who need therapies. I'm not against therapy. No, no, no. Uh, But therapy is no replacement for forgiveness. Forgiveness. On this view that humans don't sin, we think that we're, we're not selfish or self-seeking to the neglect and hurt of other people. We're, we act the way we act because we have not been nurtured to our highest potential. And have not been, or maybe somebody has prevented us from realizing our own dreams. Or maybe maybe we act the way we act because we've been victims of the overreaching demands of others, right? It isn't that we're sinners, This means humans don't need forgiveness for personal sin. We just need to be more patient with ourselves and love and forgive ourselves. And after all, we've been massively sinned against by parents and siblings and teachers and preachers and leaders. And our traumas are so many and so profound that uh, we'd be lucky to find any healing, even if we spent the rest of our lives on this planet in therapy and we're so exhausted by the sins committed against us, we have no energy to be sinners ourselves. But the gospel is clean and crisp in its message of good news, and it simply declares that we must recognize our need to confess our sin because we all sin. And that's why week in and week out, and those of you that pray through the book of common prayer with us know that we say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. we have not loved you as, as as he's called us to love us love him this is this this recognition of sin is really a remarkable positive reflection on human beings and on human dignity because it claims that in our repentance we're recognizing ourselves as free creatures that in our repentance we're saying we're not primarily the result of the choices of other people or social pressures around us, or underdeveloped evolution. What we're claiming is that we're responsible for our lives. We're responsible for the harm that we do to others. And and even though it may have been drastically expressed and uh, and may have been easy because of all the stuff that's happened to us, we still face that we must own our lives. But we do so without shame, without condemnation. There is no intention to destroy one's self-esteem here. We're simply moving towards self-honesty, and it doesn't end in shame and condemnation. It prepares us for forgiveness. And then lastly, the idea of forgiveness finds its footing in water baptism. <laughs> That's why the Nicene Creed adds, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. The church is always... Seen forgiveness situated first in water baptism. The connection between baptism and the forgiveness of sins is firmly grounded in the New Testament teaching. At Pentecost, Peter exalts the crowd, Acts 2. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. After Paul's encounter with the risen Christ on the way to to Damascus, Ananias was sent to him and tells him in Acts 22, and now, Paul, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Baptism, then, was seen as the initiating sacrament for the church to come into Christ. It initiated the forgiveness of sins and it called the members of the community of faith to practice forgiving others. It was the sacrament, this sacrament, that initiated what we now call the new birth. This is what they thought about when they were being born again. Not just a sinner's prayer, but it was... Not just a private moment, but it was the, it required the action of not only somebody's personal faith, but the community in baptizing them. Because you don't just baptize yourself. I think it's helpful to think about this like the way marriage works. If somebody, two people fall in love and and they begin to be together and they get to the point where they think, man, I can't imagine not being with you. And so I want to vow to you for the rest of my life because I think life with you will be better than life apart from you. And they're preparing the wedding and they're getting ready and they're dressing up. And technically, they're almost like married. I mean, they're kind of like married before they do that ceremony, but not quite. And then when they go up and they do the ceremony, they come off, everybody looks at them as Mary, there's something about the whole thing that after the event that, that seals the deal. When you have an encounter with Jesus, you fall in love and you should be directed to the water, to an event where salvation is secured. I mean, in a way you're already saved, but not exactly. If you died with the intention of going to that baptismal event, the church has always said you'd be safe, that God sees your heart, but the intention should always be to go to the water. Right? This is so suffused in the early church that when we read about Philip at Acts 8, he sees this guy in a chariot. He heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what, he, what you're reading, Philip asks? The guy goes, how can I, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip up to sit with him, and they talk, and after they're done talking, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And watch, and as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? What was going on? In their message, coming to Jesus meant coming to the water. Baptism and salvation were always conflated in the minds of the early church. This call to salvation was a call to the water. Salvation was not just a private matter. You were coming to God, but you were also coming to one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. That means the church plays a role in God's economy of forgiveness. That's why in John 20, Jesus told the apostles, if you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. There's some way in which the church is involved in this business of forgiveness. If you're overly Protestant, you will protest this. But here's the deal. Don't freak out. Don't panic if you've not been baptized. Just let us baptize you. Problem solve it. <laughs> Next week, we're going to talk about our future. The resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's stand.